The Gospel of John, starting in chapter 2. This chapter starts out with the famous uh, miracle at Cana, the wedding feast. Jesus' mom, Mary, is is there, and it's kind of pointed out in a way that she's there first. So she's probably pretty close to the people. Also, not only is Jesus invited, but all of his disciples. So either he had gotten enough fame at that point, which is pretty early, so seems doubtful. Uh, or, you know, his family was just known to them, and it was known that he had disciples, and so... Uh, Jesus and all his disciples were invited to the wedding feast and they ran out of wine and so Jesus's mother comes up to him and says they have no wine and Jesus says woman what does that have to do with us my hour has not yet come and his mother says to the servants whatever you say whatever he says to you do it and so Jesus kind of goes along. It's his mom. <laughs> so he goes along with it. And so, you know, the first thing we notice is she has faith. You know, it's, she has a unique relationship with Jesus, obviously. But she has faith <laughs> that he he hasn't shown himself to the world yet. But he's, I'm sure she's seen some stuff there privately at home. And she has faith that Jesus can fix this situation where they have no wine. And so she, you know, she has faith, she calls on him, and she just believes. Uh, And it's his mom, so he goes along with it. And they have six huge uh, 20 to 30 gallon uh, water purification, um, what do they call them, water pots. And he tells the servants, fill the water pots with water. So they fill them to the brim, and he says, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him, had waiter taste the water, which had now become wine, and he didn't know where it had come from, the servants knew, and he calls the bridegroom over and says to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And so John tells us this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So this is a sign which means it it tells us it's more than just a miracle, but it's a sign of things to come. And so he also mentions it manifests Jesus' glory, and his disciples now believe believe in him more so. I mean, they were already following him, but now they're saying, whoa, he just did an incredible miracle, and so they're believing in him in greater measure. So what does the sign speak to us? Well, we know the prophets had often talked about, specifically Isaiah talks a lot about it. Um, Isaiah talks about a, uh, I think it's chapter 5, where he talks about the vineyard. And, um, you know, this concept repeats over and over throughout the prophets that uh, if the vineyard is no good, then the vineyard keeper will will scrap the vineyard and and have a new vineyard. Um, That, but... Otherwise, the the vineyard keeper takes care of the vineyard so that it grows good, good grapes and therefore good wine. Um, Isaiah certainly talks about in other places um, the kingdom coming and there being new wine. So this is a fulfillment of those things, uh, but still, it's even a picture of more to come. The fact that the 
that that the original wine was not as good as the the new wine or the latter wine the you know the the latter rains will be greater than the former rains the latter temple will be greater than the former temple um this new wine is greater than what was before this is both a picture that the fact that Jesus has come is greater than anything God had done before it's also a picture that uh, Jesus's kingdom in its first coming which was while he walked the earth in that body um would be a, a preliminary kingdom uh, that would show in ever greater measure in latter times. Jesus told m- many parables about uh, a wedding feast and you know being being invited to this wedding feast and being prepared, being ready, be coming to it, you know, heeding the invitation and not being busy with your own life, but coming to this beautiful wedding feast and that the new wine would flow. The the picture of the water, the water is what we need for physical life in this world, right? Wine speaks of the a joyful life. It's more than just water that keeps us alive, but the the wine is a picture of a joyful life. So he's talking about turning we talked to yesterday about bios and the zoe life, the biology life that keeps us alive versus the life of God, the the spiritual life that's over and above the physical life. So this sign point to Jesus showing us the way into true life, not just physical life. He came to help us, and we're going to get into this in the next chapter, but he came to show us an entirely new way to live. And that's what he came for. And so then they went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And then the Passover was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem He found in the temple they were selling ox and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. So this would have been, I mean, you know, these people would have been doing this for many hundreds of years. So what, 500 years plus? They've been doing this sort of thing. Well, I mean, it may have been built up over time, but for hundreds of years for sure. And... He goes and drives them up all out of the temple. So this is a major, like, who is this guy doing this? And uh, so the sheep and the oxen are all kind of running everywhere. The people are running because he's, he's running around with a whip. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples Remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And he's doing, this is very similar to what Jeremiah, the sort of things Jeremiah said. Jeremiah was screaming at the people for decades. You people, like, this is the house of God and you people are... Uh, dishonoring it by the way you're treating it. And so he's calling to mind these things. And they're saying, who are you to do these things? Um, Of course, 
Jeremiah, when he called these things out, everything he said was came true, right? The temple was destroyed. And so uh, what Jesus is doing is calling to mind these things. And they're like, who are you? Because the thing about the religious heart, we always think, a religious person, and we get all we all get this in us. Um, I'm not talking about other people. I mean, I've I've been working for many years to try to not have religion in me in any way, but it creeps in, and so um, you know, I'm speaking to all of us here. Um, but the religious person, the the religious spirit that would, ha- the religious spirit aims to have us think we can check off a few boxes depending on our version of religion we we might have one or two boxes we might have hundreds of boxes but we check off those boxes and then we're good with God and we can go about our own selfish life apart from God that's basically religion and God says no I want you to die to your own life and come into a new life with me that I'm continually training you up throughout your day, every day, in, so that you're something completely new and different. And so the, that's the purpose of God. And the, the way that the religious spirit affects our mind and our heart is, to, is that we look back on the scriptures and they would do the same thing that we would do today. You know, they had, they had over a thousand years of scripture to look at. We have thousands of years of scripture, but is there a big difference in that? Again, the religious mind would think, well, Jesus changed everything. Well, they had things like that too. They had, well, the captivity in Babylon changed everything and now we're new and we're clean. Well, so they had that same thing to look at. We say, well, Jesus changed everything, so now I'm good with God. This has happened over and over and over again. And every time the people of God say, well, now I'm now we're good with God because this happened. Those people of God in the past, they went astray, but then God did these things, and now we're good with God. So everything's good. That's the religious spirit. And so they thought they're good. Yes, Jeremiah said those things. And yes, our forefathers were wrong, but we were sent to Babylon. And now we've come back and we've repopulated the promised land. And now we're good with God. Well, that's the, the normal Christian life, for unfortunately, for most people. Well, now we have Jesus and now we're good with God. God says, no, I have something far more from you than what you're experiencing today. I have a glorious, eternal life for you. Lived incredibly close to me, that you walk with me every day, that you experience a supernatural life, a life of wonder and beauty, um, that, you know... Achieving this means <laughs> dying to yourself, which is painful and difficult, but it's incredible and it's new and it's fresh every day. And it's the life of the creator of the universe and you together. This is what I have for you. This is what Jesus came for. He didn't just come to give you a religion. So anyways, this is what uh, 
this is the situation here. And Jesus answers them and says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knew the hearts of men that they're fickle. You remember when he enters the city in the uh in the last, you know, the last week of his life, um they're all cheering him and they're all they're all welcoming him as Messiah and and uh you know, 3 4 days later they're turning on him and killing him. Um so he understood that, that was in the heart of man. He was not basing his identity on what the crowd thought of him. He was basing his identity on the call of God. He was trusting God. He was not trusting men. Wow, these men think what I'm doing is neat, so everything must be good. No, it's irrelevant. What matters is, am I obeying the will of God? And if I am, he will work all things out for his good pleasure and that will be what is best for me, and that will be what is best for others. And we're on to chapter 3, and this is the story of Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and it calls him a ruler of the Jews, so I would assume he's part of the Sanhedrin. I, I uh, don't know a lot about that, but my assumption is that um, not all Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin. It's kind of the higher, uh, upper echelon, inner circle, and I don't know how many were a part of it, but when it says he was a ruler of the Jews, I assume he was a part of it. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he believes that Jesus is from God, which sets him apart from most Pharisees. Most Pharisees kind of want nothing to do with him, right? He's not saying, he's not tickling their ears and telling them what they want to hear. But Nicodemus has a more pure heart that, you know, if if God is doing this, then I want to be a part of it, right? Uh, at the same time, we kind of see during his life, he doesn't drop everything and follow Jesus, so he still loves the the world. He's kind of caught in between, and we can probably see that a little bit in, in ourselves, to either to a large degree or a small degree, when we analyze our own lives. Yeah, I want to follow Jesus. But this world is pretty tempting, and I don't really want to give that up. I kind of want both. Well, we see that was Nicodemus. So Nicodemus was not one of the twelve disciples. He was not, you know, raised up as the highest of the high. Um, but at the same time, he he encounters Jesus, and he does. Um, my, my guess would be that after Jesus is resurrected, he he's one of the many followers. We know many Pharisees started to follow Jesus after that time. Um, but so anyways, this is the first time we encounter him and he, so he's questioning Jesus, you know, you're obviously from God and Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And so Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So he's very confused. What are you talking about? You have to be born again. Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So now Jesus has shown two things about the kingdom. His first, uh, the, the introduction he made to Nicodemus, was you have to be born again to see the kingdom. So there's, you have to be born of water, in his second one, he says, true. So the first one was, you have to be born again to see the kingdom. The second one is, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Okay, so we have two different things here. We have seeing the kingdom and entering the kingdom. What's the difference? The first one was being born again. The second one is being born of water and the spirit. So if, for, so seeing the kingdom, there's a progression here. There's seeing the kingdom, which is um, realizing that there is an eternal kingdom. There, there is a kingdom of God available to us in this life that we can see it. And so it says you have to be born again. That What is a symbol of water baptism? It's going under the water into death and then coming out of the water into new life. That's, that's, uh, that's baptism that's going through, it's the people of Israel going through the Red Sea, they're surrounded by water on all sides. That's the death to their old life of slavery and coming out, being free to have a life in God. So that's, that's the water baptism, being born again, being marked by God. But then he says there's something more to that. And that he says we must be born of the Spirit so that we be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so it's important that we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. However, some people make a religion out of that. Um, so that, you know, it's, it's something to be careful about. Um, because what's that yes it is is important and if god says if we if we fervently seek him again i've talked about this for, for myself i was just fervently seeking him constantly uh until the lord gave that to me but that's not the end all be all so it's absolutely important <laughs> it's critically important he says you cannot enter the kingdom of god without it so critically important but it's, but it's a life of the spirit it is living your life with Holy Spirit that he's continually counseling you, teaching you, showing you things, empowering you, filling you with the life of God, and helping you um, bringing about situations that you die to your old self. Um, then that's a part a lot of people like to miss. They like to focus on things like gifts. Gifts are all wonderful. Everyone likes getting a new gift. I love gifts. I love gifts in the natural. I love gifts in the spiritual. But in the end, they're just gifts. If my wife gives me a gift, it might be something that I love. But 
After a little while, it gets old. Is it anything compared to my wife? No, it's just a gift. My wife is the person I'm sharing this life with, right? Or my children, but the, the, those closest to me, um, my spiritual family, those are the ones that I am sharing life with. And it's far more valuable than any gift. Um, it's the same with God. If we focus on gifts, we're, we're missing everything. Um, but should we, you know, Paul says, should you crave spiritual gifts? Yes, you, you should, you know, we should be hungry that God works in, in, you know, more and more ways through us. And spiritual gifts are a normal part of life, but um, more, a normal part of the kingdom life. But again, don't get off track on focusing on gifts. Focus on the giver. Focus on the king. Gifts will come. And that's a little bit of an aside because Jesus is not talking about gifts at all here. It's just a common way a large part of the church has gone astray. And um, so I'd like to throw out that warning when I talk about this. But what is he talking about? He's talking about entering the kingdom. Which is, again, far more valuable than anything else. He's talking about not just being born into a new life and being a baby. But being raised up into this new life that as you begin you know you start as a toddler and then I don't know what all the stages are called but eventually you become an adolescent and then you become mature so an adolescent you're really learning um all the ways what adolescent's small right and then you have teenager is that how they go and then uh you start to more and more you're interacting with the world and the natural if we think about the natural life you're interacting with the world and you're continually learning and because you're a child you are hungry to learn and you're growing the danger in in maturity both in adulthood in normal physical adulthood and in the spirit is when we begin to think we're arrived and we stop learning that's a it's a dangerous thing in both types of life. Um, when you're a child, you're not uh, confused by that. You are hungry to learn. And you're continually learning and growing. And at a certain point, you, you know, and, and so if we look at a physical life, at a, you know, as you're young, nothing's expected of you. As you get a little older, Little things are expected of you, like, okay, you take out the trash. Um, you know, the family would function just fine if you weren't taking out the trash, but you start having little responsibilities, and hey, someone needs to do it, and you're doing it. As you get older, you start having bigger responsibilities, and bigger. Eventually, you enter into the fa- the family business, and you, you start learning the family business, and you start being a part of what the family is doing in order to make their way in the world, to put food on the table and a house, and therefore, the, such things. Um, and you're growing. Eventually, you have the maturity to actually be able to run the family business because you've been trained up in all the father's ways. You're well into adulthood, and the father can trust you to actually run the business. And the father can step back and enjoy the fact that he's raised you up in order to represent the family and the family business in such a wonderful way that you now represent it. And he can rest and enjoy the fact that he's you know, taught you well. And he can marvel at the 
unique ways in which you do it because you've learned all the important facets that he's taught you. It's because there are certain things that you learned along the way that are important to make this business work. And so you've taught him all these important things and you see he's doing them, but you also marvel at the unique ways in which he does it, which show his personality, which are unique. And so you're able to enjoy the training that you've given him along with the unique ways that he's, you know, he's a special and unique in the world and how this all comes together. And he's able to run this business in a marvelous way. And you're able to enjoy that. Well, that's exactly what the father wants to do with mankind. He has to, we have to die to our old life or our, you know, in a, in a physical world, it might be bad habits in, in the spiritual life. It's, it's our, our fallen life, our life of sin, which sin means missing the mark. So all of our old ways have to die so, but, so that he can raise us up and train us his ways, his wisdom, his love, the truth of how the world works. So he has to train us up in these things. But then he loves seeing the unique ways we put uh, these things into practice and, and what he, he does. He loves having this intimate life with us. And so in order, to, you know, entering in is this process of learning and growing. We got to start by, you know, crawling on the floor and then eventually we can take out the trash. And, you know, I mean, it, it starts at the small level, but it grows and grows until we reach maturity this this is entering the kingdom there's eventually scripture talks about inheriting the kingdom that's when the fullness of maturity comes verse 8 said the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going so is everyone who is born of the spirit so he's saying that it's this spiritual life, you don't see it. It's not obvious to anyone to look at, just like the wind. You can see the effects of the wind. And so when the spiritual life is in someone, over time, you're going to notice there's change happening here. If you're around every day, you, or, or, or maybe you're gone for a while, but then you come back and then you spend considerable time with someone. You can say, well, okay, there's something has changed in this person. Um, whereas a random person, you meet him on the street and you know him 20 years ago, you're not expecting any change because in the natural, um, that kind of core change doesn't typically happen. Um, it's just the same as the wind. We can't see it happening, but if you notice the wind, you notice, well, there's, there's leaves are blown, you know, there's leaves are moving. There's, I feel the wind on my face. You see the effects of the wind. So he's saying we can't see this change happening. The life of the spirit is spiritual. It's not perceptible by the eyes, but we can see the effects of it. So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answers, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven. So let me stop there. So he's saying, I'm trying to tell you, he's like, Jeremiah talked about this. And I'm trying to tell you how God interrupts the life of a man and introduces his life so that change can happen. This is the basic fundamentals of God working in a man. And if you don't understand this, 
how can you possibly hope to understand uh, deeper things of the Lord? And so he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. So he's proclaiming himself as, the title he prefers to give himself is the Son of Man, and he's proclaiming himself as having descended from heaven, and that he's the only one that can ascend to heaven. And he says, Moses gave you the sign in the wilderness. He lifted up the snake or the serpent to look at so that the serpents that were attacking you and killing you would not be, have the power to kill you. So when you, when in the wilderness, when that was, you know, the serpents were all killing, God had sent the serpents to kill them because the people were rebellious. And so then God had Moses to put up this bronze serpent so that the people could look up at it and be healed. And Jesus says, this was a sign of me, that you can look up at me, believe in me. And of course, Jesus was put on a cross, just like this, this, uh, you know, the symbol that they looked up. Um, Jesus very much fulfilled this sign. And he says, look up at me. To, and have this life. You can enter into this life. It always makes me chuckle that, uh, that right before the most famous verse in the Bible, uh, Jesus is talking about snakes. <laughs> I think the vast majority of people do not know that. But then we go into John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so... That, that it is the way that Jesus is saying right now the the cross section of all time and all humanity is the coming of Jesus. He was the only begotten Son that we must believe in him to enter into this eternal life. There's no other way. He goes on, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he came, his purpose is not to just condemn everything because everyone and everything, it's Adam turned the world over that had limitless possibilities. He turned it over to Satan and it became corrupted. And so God said, I'm not just going to wipe everything out. Um, I'm going to make a way for it to be redeemed. And Jesus says, I am that way God gave for all of creation to be redeemed. You must come through me. You must enter into the cross as I have. Carry your own cross and follow me. He says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. He says, we're already judged in our sin. But when we come to him, but when we come to him, he takes the judgment for us so that we can enter into this life without sin. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Those, are those who are already judged. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. So unfortunately, that's, you know, I, I, I've talked before about you know, God showing major signs and being shocked that after people see these signs, they just 
weren't that interested. Um, I've heard a story of, uh, from Africa. I wasn't, certainly wasn't there, but man being raised from the dead, everyone in the village knew it. And, uh, I mean, he'd been dead for a while. It's not like he just, it was questionable. Like he'd been dead since the morgue. Um, and raised from the dead, everyone around knew it. Everyone knew he'd been dead. He'd come back to life. And he went about his carnal life and didn't give his life to the Lord. <laughs> he just, he's like, oh, really? Okay, well, I'm going about my life. Because men love darkness. And so, you know, it's a very personal thing with each one of us. Do we love the light or do we love the darkness? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus is the light of God. And we're called to be that light. Once we come into him, believe, be transformed into his life, then we're called to be that light in darkness. Um, and to some we are, and to that, that's the most glorious thing that you know in the world. Um, but some men choose darkness. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So Jesus is well aware that what he is and how people are going to react. That some are going to love him and follow him, and some are going to hate him. He is not bothered by that. See, when the world, when you're, when you're um, inclined by, or what's the word? When you're influenced, that's a great word today that's used a lot. Everyone wants to be an influencer, right? Well, when you're influenced by the world, not everyone, of course, I'm mostly talking about millennials, but uh, and the generation after them, but um, but that's a term that you hear now. Um, when you're influenced by the world, if those people can affect you, then you, the light of God is not in you. Sorry to say, uh, we were just talking about this in commercials and. Um, the whole world is trying to influence you. Jesus wasn't influenced. And we are called to not be influenced by anything other than God. And so he says, men love darkness. Follow the light. Fill yourself with the light. Do not, do not, be, do not overly expose yourself to the darkness because it will influence you. The more you spend time in the darkness, the more influence it will have over you. Uh, you have to be in the world, so there's no avoiding it. But you don't have to continually subject yourself to it. And so, for everyone who does evil, hates the light. So that's subjecting yourself to this evil. And for everyone who does evil, hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. We all have evil, horrible pasts. Some of us right now still do. Uh, we're still practicing things that we know we ought to get rid of. He says, come to the light, expose these, repent, and turn around and be filled with the glorious truth of Jesus. And he will redeem you from all these things. He has, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you've already been redeemed from many things. And, uh, and you're well aware he wants to take you out of everything in the world so that the only one who does influence you is Jesus, his Holy Spirit, God the Father, that, that he then can transform you into the glorious life that he has always intended for mankind and for you specifically.
So after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into Judea, and they were spending time with him and baptizing. John was also there baptizing, and because there was much water there, people were coming and being baptized, and John had not yet been thrown into prison. And therefore there arose a discussion between John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Of course, they were all Jews. It's weird how the scriptures, a lot of authors do this, and it's, I think it's part of what came up to a lot of um, uh, persecution of the Jews, is the scriptures just call them Jews when really they mean like the ruling authority of the Jews. Because the writer, John's a Jew, he's writing this. Uh, it's weird to me, but that's just the way they did it. Um, and so everyone involved, the writer and all the characters <laughs> are all Jews, but but he he... He points out some as being a Jew, so it's odd. But anyways, um, what he means is the ruling establishment, the Pharisees, that sort of thing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So they're asking John, you know, what's this? You pointed to Jesus, you said he's special, you baptized him. And now people are coming to him instead of us. And John answers, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So that is a really powerful prophetic word of John, both stating what is and what will always be. Um, we know that Jesus called him the greatest of all prophets, and that, I mean, that was just an amazing thing that he just said that uh, shows the Spirit of God was speaking through John so powerfully right there. And if you, what's interesting, and Jesus explained, John is not of the kingdom, but here clearly the Spirit was speaking through John, like the, you know, he clearly had this understanding. But we can see he's not of the kingdom because later when John's in prison and he's speaking more as a man he and he's confused because because that's what would happen to a prophet, you know, before, before the kingdom came. The spirit would come on a man and he would speak through God, but then it, you know, would leave and he would, you know, be an ordinary man. So there wasn't this transformational process that is available to us now through Jesus, through the Holy Spirit. And when G John was later in prison, he was sent word to Jesus saying, wait a minute, are you, you know, are you the Messiah? 
The reason is he's confused. He's like, man, I gave my life to this. My, you know, my whole, all my time uh, talking about the coming Messiah. And now I've gotten thrown in jail. That does not seem right. <laughs> you know, he's like, this can't be. And I'm expecting you. And even if I die, he, he's probably willing to die for it. Because he knew that's what happened to all the prophets. Um, but he's like, you're supposed to make yourself king. And I don't see you doing that. So are are you not, was I wrong? He even doubts God when God was speaking through him. Was I wrong? Um, and Jesus is just, no, you just don't understand. And so let's kind of look at what John did say right here because it was beautiful. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given from heaven. So this is a powerful, potent word. He understands that for him, he and he's about to go on, you know, I'm just the the uh, uh, the friend of the bridegroom. Is there a title for that? I can't remember. The fr- yeah, the friend of the bridegroom. That's the title. Um, he says, I, I'm just that. that. There's certainly some glory in that, right? I'm standing up there proud to support my friend, the bridegroom, but I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. That's all that has been given to me. You might stand around here and everyone's coming to me to be baptized, so I seem somewhat glorious and, and, and indeed. Isaiah prophesied about me, right? Malachi prophesied about me. So there's a certain glory in that. But my glory is nothing compared to the bridegroom. And I'm happy to be a part of his wedding now. It's not about me anymore. It was about me when I was preparing the way. But, well, I mean, he always understood it wasn't about him. But to, to some extent, he was standing there as the anointed one of God, doing the thing God had sent him to do. But he says, now it's time for me to step aside because the bridegroom is here. And I'm happy to be about that. Jesus, of course, was sent to be Messiah. He was sent to live the perfect life and then to be the Passover lamb hung on a cross for us so that we could enter into this life. He couldn't do that if it was not given from the Father. It is the only way for any of us. Each one of us has our own particular calling that we are to enter into this life and that life will look different through each one of us and we can only do what the father is given unfortunately what a lot of people do is they get hold of some of this they have the life of the spirit they experience things and then they start running off in their own flesh in their own fallen ways they refuse to be trained up to only do what the father is doing but that's all we can do in him is what he gives us to do. So John goes on. He says, you're witnesses. I said, I'm not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of him. But now the bridegroom is here. And I. it's my joy to be a part of his wedding. He must increase, but I must de- decrease. And this is you know, true in our own lives, as I just mentioned. That the life of God must increase in us. Our former life must die. It must decrease. So that the fullness of his life is in us. He did make us unique to represent him in a very unique way in all of creation. Each one of us. And so he wants that. But a lot of what we think about as us is really the fallen life. The way uh, Satan and the world have influenced us in order to be something that is not of God. Those things must decrease. Those things must die. When he talks about of the earth, that's what he's talking about. 
He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So, obviously he's speaking about Jesus, but this is true in our own lives, that his life must come in us and, and be of us. Those parts of us that are of the earth must go away. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So do we receive him in full? He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So the more we receive him, his testimony, his seal, and turn away from the world, our old life, the flesh, God gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. Jesus is the inheritor of all. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. The wrath of God is on all the world already. We already discussed this because Adam turned it over to Satan. But Jesus is this way into this eternal life, this eternal kingdom, this new reality. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to get to the Father. And that's his purpose for us, that we enter into this glorious new life. And Father, we thank you for this. And Lord, we we pray for more of you. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Lead us into your way, into your new life. Help us to be completely dead to the old life and alive to you. We thank you, Jesus, for doing this very thing in us. Uh, That's it for today. God bless you.